You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 24. Today we're asking the question, how did David Woods discover the theory of graceful extensibility? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The show is produced every Monday and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. Drew isn't with me today because this week I'm speaking directly with Professor David Woods, who I've been fortunate enough to spend a fair bit of time with over the last few years. So Dave, thank you so much for joining us on the Safety of Work podcast. I was hoping to get you on before the current situation with uh, COVID-19 and just for our listeners, this will come out in about four weeks from when we record, but it's the 2nd of April today when we're recording. So we might at the end, Dave, just get you to give us some foresight about what you think will be happening in, in four weeks' time. But what I really wanted to do was to take the opportunity to hear from you about the theory of graceful extensibility. And given the situation we're in right now, we might be able to help our listeners to understand that theory um, and the application of that theory and the problems that that theory can help us explain and understand in the context of the current uh, situation with COVID-19 around the world and particularly maybe in relation to the healthcare sector um, and how it needs to adjust and adapt and respond to the situation that it's facing. So firstly, Dave, I'm really interested to understand, I suppose over the last 40 years, all of the fundamental findings that you've been involved in across nuclear and aerospace and healthcare and information systems and, and how that led to graceful extensibility and, and what you wrote in 2017, 2018. So it's a, it was sort of a, one of these issues where you've been developing something and you didn't really know you had. Uh, as this came into focus, remember, we, we started Resilience Engineering circa 2000. And then we had our first meeting in 2004. Um, a lot of this was around the uh, NASA's uh, space exploration mishaps in t- uh, 1999. And then, uh, unfortunately, the Columbia space shuttle accident in 2003, a variety of things. And then we, we really started to launch the community and to say we had foundations and findings and ideas and things that mattered. And as we pulled things together for the 2006 book and moving forward, it, it was uh, a time to go back and synthesize and, and reframe things that go have instances and empirical confirmations that go way, way back. You know, it, it was an early nuclear uh, study we did, and it was all about uh, aspects of reciprocity and risk of saturation. How did one recognize when another scope of responsibility was going to run out of space? And they were, they were just running out of the capability to control the process and how they could change what they were doing for their scope of responsibility to help the other controller uh, operator through that difficult patch. We saw it in uh, studies Richard Cook and I did 31 years ago when we first started looking at the operating room and what's expertise in anesthesia. It is anticipating bottlenecks ahead. Even though the occurrence of those bottlenecks might be relatively low probability, the difficulty was if you had to create the capability to act effectively in the middle of the crunch, you're not likely to do it very well. 
So to be effective as a responsible operator, the anesthesiologist would invest extra energy and extra work in advance to create the opportunities to uh, act effectively should the crunch arise. So we illustrated anticipation. Uh, you know, uh, we found ourselves writing papers using the word saturation. And I look back, I was surprised at how many times I had used the word saturation. And, and, and also in papers with Richard around 2000 uh, about bridging gaps uh, and the, the, low, the how resilience is found in the operators at the front lines because they have to adapt to make the system work. And so they fill in the gaps and the holes what in 2004 we started calling work is imagined versus work is done. They have to bridge that gap uh, as responsible agents in the world. Uh, all of this was part of a shift. Uh, we were all dissatisfied with safety because uh, we just kept fighting the same battles and not making progress. And we decided we needed to reframe and shift the ground on which we fought these battles. And we started saying in a world of complexity, resilience, building resilient capabilities or investing in the sources that create resilient performance was something all organizations need as the world gets more interdependent and complex. A lot of this started, uh, so this was coming together pretty well, and I was starting already to follow and use John Doyle's work with a variety of colleagues when he and I shared the uh, platform at a conference on complexity. And uh, the interactions with John and some of his colleagues, uh, uh, Dave Alderson and others, helped pull together and understand some of the things uh, that are going on, as well as have some areas where we have mathematical uh, proofs of concept, where the nonlinear math and things play out. Interactions have ended up being interesting in the one of the fundamental concepts is about trade-offs, fundamental trade-offs. And we both kind of come to the idea that there are about five dimensions, five kinds of trade-off things that interact. So it's not just moving one point on an operating curve, uh, but rather you're uh, in order to move one, and I'll illustrate that in a couple of minutes. Uh, when you have to do that, you're really making a shift on several trade-off curves. And so a lot of this is about biological examples that illustrate how you can navigate dynamically in this trade space. And that plays out at different scales. And so we end up with this problem of architecture, structure, for, or organized, how organized complexity. There is an organization relative to complexity, so you can outmaneuver uh, the kinds of interdependencies and traps. Ultimately, uh, a lot of what uh, drives this is a, a, com is a complete reframing where most people operate on, let's put some simplifications. It's okay to pretend the world is only linear. It's okay to pr pretend that uh, surprise is only about frequency. It's okay to do these things and look what we can put together and understand the world. Now, the success of that simplification linearization strategy has been to improve optimality when you can, when that, when it's safe to simplify. And that turns out to not hold in general. Uh, and in fact, even worse, the successes it creates turns out to drive a growth of complexity. So we have networks, uh, layered networks at scale. So let me, let me switch gears for a minute and let's start with what I read today. All right. I mean, let's understand this by what happened today. A doctor in the New York Times writes an editorial. Right. About what are healthcare workers supposed to do when they are poorly provisioned, overloaded, when society as a whole has been late 
and they're on they're receiving the end result of a uh, uh, COVID nineteen outbreaks out of control, such as in New York, Italy, Spain, Wuhan, right places where this happened. And what's their what's their responsibility, right? As healthcare workers, frontline workers, they have the responsibility to make it work. When we study in emergency medicine or the studies we've done of large mass casualty events, beyond surge events, right? What do we find? The people on the front lines adapt. It's kind of ad hoc because they're not really prepared. The kinds of plans are kind of fictional. They're underspecified and don't really address the real issues that they have to recognize and adapt around in order to continue to provide care to injured or sick people. But they do it. They keep stretching. They keep stretching. They reconfigure space. They reconfigure how they work together. They reconfigure how they deploy expertise because expertise will turn out to be in short supply. They have to integrate people who come to volunteer. People come to the hospital to help make it work in a mass casualty event. How do I integrate them in? Uh, I sacrifice things like documentation because so many people are coming in, but I still kind of have to do documentation because we transfer patients. So how can I do it in a new way? Because the standard way is way too slow, way too workload intensive. It doesn't work in the crisis situation. We change the way we deal with other parts of the hospital and pharmacy reciprocates, right? Because what do they do? They come back and say, they don't come back and say, how you have to put that request in through the formal system and then it will show up on my computer screen and then I will fill out all these other forms and we, uh, and then the authorization will come from the other center and then I will, and eventually it shows up in 12 hours or whatever, three hours or whatever. Not possible, right? So they adapt their processes and modify them. So what, what did the doctor say today, right? Healthcare workers should not be forced to incur additional risk because people don't want to practice social distancing, right? Or we should not have to pay for short-sighted policies that have already eviscerated public health infrastructure. And of course, we need proper masks. Uh, social order replies on, uh, relies on reciprocity. Imposing outside burdens on one group without sacrifice from others is unfair. Doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers may be heroes in this pandemic, but we will not be martyrs. What does that capture? It captures right, reciprocity and sacrifice. Right? The sacrifice judgment was one of the key things they laid out in the 2006 Essentials chapter. Or you can look at the last year's uh, Essentials Revisited chapter uh, for some of these things where I emphasize the other word he used, reciprocity. Without reciprocity across groups. What did we put on our diary, our COVID diary uh, yesterday is the last night is a... Uh, an analogy to team de defense in basketball, since this would be big basketball season in the U.S., uh, and team de defense is all about help, right? You start to recognize one player, the responsibilities are about to break down in the face of the offensive plays and, and uh, skill sets, right? And the other defenders come to help, which then means other defenders come to help. But of course, it isn't just what happens during the game at that moment. It's what's the team worked on in terms of the different tactics and strategies for help defense, right? And how does that work out and how they put the team together and various things. And so all of the layers in the team and its structure come into the play to build a system for team defense that has to change, right? As the opponent makes changes. So we wrote it up as Team COVID versus Team USA. Team USA got behind real early. 
right? And how do we, we need that system of help in order to make progress, right? And guess what we ended with? We ended with the line that, you know, whether we build a system of help or not, the healthcare workers and now cleaners and other and delivery people or who are on the front lines, a lot of them will step up and they will do the job. Now, uh, so reciprocity, the sacrifice judgment, trade-offs are all in that quote. Now let's take another big idea that matters a lot here. And been talking about this for 40 years since the uh, Three Mile Island nuclear accident started my career. Uh, a couple of days ago, a, uh, person, a professor at Georgetown University said in biomedical that a biomedical powerhouse like the U.S. should so, so, should so thoroughly fail to create a very simple diagnostic test was quite literally unimaginable. I'm not aware of any simulations that I or others have run where we could consider, even consider, such a failure of testing, right? Now, wait a minute. Guess where I started? Three Mile Island. That was, that was written then, right? It was written with Challenger and Columbia and many, many highly visible cases of failures. And so this was an early idea, right? It came under different labels and it's often been misunderstood uh, and talked about and, and not driving at the core simple idea. The simple idea is that we are always vulnerable to surprise. Surprise is ongoing. It's not a rarity that occasionally happens once in a hundred years. Surprise is, is always present. Small surprises are always occurring. And that's part of the gap between work is imagined and work is done. In fact, it's fundamental. It turns out systems have to run this way. And the simple reason is that there are the two only assumptions that I have to make to lay out graceful extensibility and the theory of graceful extensibility that explains and integrates all this stuff and tells us where to, where to go, uh, which is finite resources and that change never stops. Right? So why does that matter? Well, finite resources means there will always be limits to whatever planful approach we have worked out, however it's embodied in technology and procedures and training and whatever, whatever scale we look at it, even in places like the emergency room that's designed to adapt to a certain degree. However we lay that out, finite resources and change means there will be limits. And there are events outside those limits or boundaries. Those events are surprises. I've often used the metaphor visually dramatically of dragons of surprise, which if I could ever go visit my two-year-old grandson who loves dragons and dinosaurs and can't tell the difference. And he got to see that grandpa, you know, with the dragon uh, animations, he would go, he would be very excited and go, Roar. well, they're roaring dragons out there now with COVID-19. They're not subtle dragons. They are brightly colored dragons and they are beating up all different kinds of parts of the system at the same time. When you talk about those assumptions, I like the way that you say that uncertainty is never zero and varies, and therefore risk is never zero and varies. Yep, that's right. We, we're always trade, and that leads us to that these trade-offs are fundamental. So the idea of surprise turns out to be really hard, really, really hard for people to get. And I've been a little uh, surprised <laughs> because it's not frequency. Now we can run through, and I usually do a corrective about, we usually blow the frequency version of surprise because distributions are heavy-tailed in several senses. So, you know, uh, three out of four years, we had one in 500-year uh, uh, extreme rain events in Houston, uh, Texas, in the U.S. 
right? The frequency models are not correct, as simply from a frequency point of view. And this has to do with space and time averaging and other things. Uh, you know, what's the probability of an extreme rain event happening in the U.S. over any three-month period? Well, it isn't, it isn't a probability, it, it's a number, right? These things happen regularly, and so you have to prepare for them. And we often find we're quite underprepared because we misinterpret frequency. But the bigger issue is surprise is model surprise. And it goes back to the old military saying that, you know, uh, plans uh, fail quickly after contact with an adversary or in disaster planning, right? All of our emergency plans fall apart after contact with a crisis. These are old sayings that, what are they saying? Is our models of how things should work, the models that have developed over time to get better on some criteria, to get more optimal, even if we put in some mechanisms to defend against well understood kinds of disturbances and failures have limits and they get challenged, you know, and you can't enumerate the kinds of challenges that can arise, but you still have to be prepared. So now we're at the discovery of graceful extensibility. And the story of that is, it's kind of what I meant from the beginning in 2000, when I first proposed that we needed to develop Resilience engineering is a proactive safety strategy for NASA. And I meant resilience as the opposite of brittleness. Now, I knew resilience as a label would get popular, but I had no idea how ridiculously popular it would get and therefore used to cover everything and anything and become uh, as a result of merely a pointer word and not really have any technical content or substantive content anymore. And so about 2014, 15, um, I was, uh, I realized uh, begrudgingly, I had to I had to think about this differently. And in some ways I had, that meant I had to go dig into what did I really mean? Why did I, why did I want to see it as this inverse of brittleness? And given the work with John Doyle, and so I went back and started looking through what I really meant. And the work I'd been doing with John Doyle uh, and his papers and, and, and uh, proof of concept studies Going back to some of our uh, studies and proof of concept from our colleagues, like in emergency medicine. And that's where I realized the core principle uh, that this wasn't just a word thing. There was a fundamental concept underneath that applied to all adaptive systems at all scales, given that the interdependent, interconnected world is inescapable eventually. And it was this line that. Vi uh, viability requires extensibility. That this is a hard constraint, it's a universal constraint. Viability requires extensibility. And what that means is really simple, is right in the short run, I can be try to be more optimal for what frequently occurs, what I understand, what I can come to understand. And I make investments in trying to constantly improve that. So that seeking of being more optimal for what regular, regularly occurs, especially regular variations, by trying to estimate patterns and variation, uh, that that's important in, across the biological sphere at any level, from cells to organ systems, healthy organs, sick organs with people helping all the way up, human uh, systems and societies. So humans and organizations will always try to get more efficient and faster, better, cheaper, easier to do anything that they do every day. And it's perfectly reasonable to do that, as long as you don't only do that. 
right? Because what happens, right? Given the constraints of an of an inter interdependent world and the cross scale interactions, finite resources, continuing change, surprise will show up. There are limits. There are boundaries to your envelope of competence from your planful behavior. Then what you end up with is um, you will be surprised. Your the world will find the limits of your planful system. It will challenge those limits. Uh, it is probing all the time and adjustments have to happen all the time in order to compensate. And that means that biological systems have to have another capability and we call that graceful extensibility. I have to be able to extend gracefully from my normal activity in order to handle surprises. Now, graceful extensibility, right? Viability requires this. Why? Because right, it's brittleness. Right. Descriptively, brittleness is a boundary effect, right? At the edge of your limits, right? How fast does performance fall off? Right. So we think of a material, right? It bends, it bends, it bends, right? And it breaks. And we call that its brittle point. We can look at that in material science. We can draw the curves in material science. The same thing plays out in adaptive systems. It's called decompensation. It's a fundamental way adaptive systems can break. How do they break? They continue, they exhaust re deploying resources. They're resources they can deploy to keep up with increasing demands. Right? Eventually the exhaustion, there's nothing else to grab and there's a sudden collapse in performance. By the way, this is what's going on at multiple levels in the current uh, pandemic. You have stages of physiological respiratory decompensation. It has to get hard, a respiratory system has to start failing enough that you go to the hospital or that you're sick enough to get in to potentially overloaded hospitals, right? Then when you're in the hospital, they're watching you and getting ready because your respiratory system may decompensate again, right? It relates to the physiological mechanism of this particular virus, which is not the normal configuration of symptoms and risk. And so what do they do? They preemptively intubate patients, right? In a very particular way to deal with some of the side effects, the side constraints of this disease and its uh, risk it brings. And they need to get control of the airway and be ready to support the respiratory system. Why? Because when the patients, right, uh, decompensate, you need to do something constructive fast. And if you're trying to intubate them when their uh, oxygen saturation is plummeting and the organ systems are starting to uh, respond to the lack of oxygen, right? It's too late and you're unlikely to be successful in uh, uh, supporting that patient. Now, that happens again later. So patients look like they're on recovery 10, 12 days in, maybe even a little longer. Notice this is a long time delay. Uh, and then what happens is uh, you get a sudden cardiac death, right? And the mechanism of that is unclear, but it's another form of as the virus percolates through your body, it has a secondary effect. This depend, may depend on some other illnesses and states of the person's physiology. We don't know yet, but these are decompensation. Well, what's the operating, what's the ICU doing? It's at risk of decompensating in New York, in Italy, in Spain, right? As loaded, overloaded, 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 especially as healthcare workers drop out because they become sick as well because there's a lack of protective gear. Notice how one thing is piling on another as this plays out. In the biological world, viability in the long run, avoiding brittle collapse, turns out to be essential because eventually, no matter how specialized you are for the environment as is, as it's changing slowly and the variations within that environment seasonally, et cetera, the world will shift on you. 
you know, this is back to Darwin when he visited the Galapagos Islands. We can talk about it with Darwin's finches, right? As one's specialized for an environment, they get strong beaks for nuts. Another one specializes for food from flowers and long slender beaks, right? Where did they all come from? A generalized bird. But those specialized ones, while being more optimal for the current environment, become less optimal should that environment change. And the more generalized original species now become uh, more uh, adaptable to the new environment. It happens with neurophysiology. It happens with the brain, right? So the brain simultaneously, and it's really interesting what the brain does because it simultaneously is listening to the world about what's typical, what's frequent, what's the, the frequent patterns of change and variation over a certain time and space range. We're really good at that. The brain's going to pick up these trends and, and, tune behavior to match them, given the affordances for that particular organism. Well, but the world changes. So what does the brain have to do? It has to be really sensitive to what's new, what's novel, what's a surprise. And it turns out it is. It's really sensitive to anomalies uh, within a certain space and time uh, scale. Uh, it's enormously sensitive. It builds up this rolling model of what's typical that varies with context. And it's really sensitive to departures from typical. Wow. In fact, it does it really early in the neurological processing. It's not something, well, let me infer, 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 and, you know, I got to compute, 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 and then I'll figure this out. No, it's set up to do it really fast. Because if novel things are happening, you want to know about them really fast. So what's going on related to this is the right, anticipation. And so we have the uh, the critical function uh, for resilient performance of anticipating, what did I say Richard and I found 31 years ago? Anticipating bottlenecks ahead, right? And adapting in advance of the crunch. So we see the difference now between uh, jurisdictions where they um, took the information and started to act early. My state of Ohio was our governor acted early before there was a single case in the state. He canceled a very large sporting event, uh, economic consequences uh, for, for several parts of the state and the cities involved a uh, lot of criticism. But he ended up being the one who had seen the signs from other places because it's a, real, a rolling series of outbreaks. That the other outbreaks and what had happened provided a basis for him to see what could be coming and say, I need to prepare the state in advance. I need to reduce transmission rates, so social distancing, canceling large gatherings. I need to expand the capability, the readiness to respond to our healthcare system so they can take on more patients. So he was implementing a basic resilience engineering findings and tactics for dealing with surprise by anticipating and building a readiness to respond which turned out to require coordination across many different roles, jurisdictions, levels, right? And has turned out to not be able to be supported by a federal level response. So that the state is responding effectively and trying to stay out of uh, controversy, but working kind of, we're, got, we're gonna have to take care of ourselves. And that's, right, a breakdown in coordination or synchronization. So we've seen three, um, the three downsides and the three and the associated complementary upsides of the way adaptive systems can fail. Decompensation, they can't keep up with the growing demands and uh, difficulties and disturbances. And we see that in several places in this, uh, in the rolling outbreaks around the world.
Uh, the opposite is anticipation. So we see parts of Asia anticipating and understanding what happened in Wuhan, broke transmission early with extensive test track and isolate, standard epidemiology intervention, coupled with canceling large gatherings and social distancing, and they've reduced transmission, not overloaded their hospitals, and been able to relax some of the uh, activity restrictions in their societies. We see the second one, uh, working at cross-purposes right, versus synchronization. And we see that working across purposes break down across levels, uh, vertical levels in society, uh, uh, certainly in the U.S. and the U.K., as opposed to places like Singapore and Taiwan, where those were well synchronized vertically. Now, what's interesting is what we've seen many times is the people who are take on the responsibility, the people in the roles where who end up being the final and most critical source of resilient performance, they have to adapt and they know they can't do it by themselves. So what do they do? Uh, remember that quote I read from today's New York Times. So what do they do? They build ad hoc, emergent, horizontal communication. They pulse their personal network, who they went, who they were fellows with, who they were residents with. Where are they in the world? Are they earlier in the rolling outbreaks? What can they tell me about this disease and what we have to do to get ready? They work their horizontal professional links. Uh, where's the best information? Look at the Society for Critical Care Medicine or Emergency Medicine. These kinds of societies are trying to collate information. What do they tell you? They tell you the, when you talk to the people who are in the ICU or going to be in the ICU as physicians, uh, they come back and go, well, what I heard from my old colleagues is the freshest stuff. And that's important because that's the fastest information, right? But it needs to be corroborated. And so we get this from the professional societies. Well, they mostly are saying the same thing, uh, it's just a little time delay, right? And then we get other information from authorities. Well, those are time delayed some more because they're processing and then they have to, they have to get it up and then they have to communicate it back down. So that's even slower. Right. And then we have to accommodate that. And then, you know, and we as we ran through all the ways that the uh, intensive care units were adapting, the hospitals were adapting to support the intensive care units, how the larger system across the state was adapting to support the hospital, support the ICU uh, in, in all of this. Right. He comes back to me and says, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how fast we can learn and adapt and get that information to the bedside. How fast can we learn and adapt? What's that? That's the third one. Slow and stale, where we get stuck in old models of how things used to work well, when the world has changed and we're not ready. We're falling behind that change. It's not that the plans weren't appropriate to a previous world. It's just not the world you're in anymore. Right? And recognizing this, you know, the people saying, notice the downside version of that was people saying, and some, some still say, oh, it's just the flu. And the answer is, no, 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 this is not. This is a novel disease with novel presentation, novel risk, challenging the medical personnel to reorganize their knowledge and techniques in order to care for these patients. They're learning as they go and they're open to learn more. That's the proactive learning or upside on the third one. So being stuck in stale approaches versus proactively learning and adapting uh, from what's going on. That's one of the ironies in terms of illustrating the resilience findings in uh, the rolling outbreaks. Because it happened to somebody else first, you had the opportunity to anticipate and adapt. You could learn. 
you could start the coordination process. You could build up resources in advance of crunches that could be coming. Now, guess what? However this plays out, uh, and we'll see, but it's always possible some jurisdictions will over-prepare. And at least in this round, they will not get crunched. They will have capacity. They didn't have to shut everything down. And the answer is good. That's a sign of success. You have to over-prepare. Viability requires extensibility because if you didn't build it in advance and you happen to get crunched, your performance will be worse. Now, what's ironic about this uh, setting is uh, from a safety point of view is this is a case where we have what we've never had. When safety, we can't have bad events. We have too many bad events. It's too costly and we have to change. And so we end up with this problem that we can never show you for sure in some statistical way that it was important to make these invest investments in advance, that it was necessary in order to handle uh, potential crunches to support the sources of resilience at the front lines. But in this case, unfortunately, we will have the data and it's called excessive deaths. And just like in the 1918-19 uh, influenza pandemic, you can go back afterwards and you can calculate the excessive deaths and there'll be arguments and estimations about hidden uh, deaths and were they assigned to the virus or something else or they were assigned to the virus when they should have been assigned to something else and and underserved uh, populations will have deaths that ha happen outside of hospitals because they there's not enough care capacity or uh, they don't have access to it uh, but they'll estimate it and you know what's going to be correlated with it's going to be correlated with who anticipated, who anticipated and built the readiness to respond, right? Will avoid getting slammed, right? They'll avoid getting their ICU and hospitals saturated and they will have better outcomes for patients. That's a real fundamental finding. I think you mentioned that to me before about emergency response in control room settings. Those, those people and teams that are able to revise their model and revise their situation assessment and change the way that they understand what's going on are the ones able to respond quickly and make the small sacrifice judgments which become much easier to make than the bigger ones once that cascading chain of events has, has basically resulted in saturation. Well and that's one of the things that's been coming out recently is this um, how do you make this uh, make the sacrifices small enough that they're doable and they have a direction that can build right so you make a small sacrifice that generates more information that tests test how, how hard do I have to work to handle this, uh, which gives you feedback. I have to work harder, you know, gives you early feedback. You need to work harder. You need to invest some more. You need to dig a little further. You need to recruit some more specialized knowledge. You need to organize in a different way in order to continue to keep up with the pace of demands. It's about keeping pace. So what you've hit on is a very basic aspect of adaptive capacity, which is you're poised to adapt. You have to have the capability in advance of the, the situation that demands performance. You have to have the capability and it has to exist in advance of the demonstration of that capability and putting it into action. So you have to be poised to adapt and being able to be capable to be poised to adapt means it's like potential energy in physics. Go to back to your high school physics. There's right kinetic energy and there's potential energy and we can run these things. And yeah, it's kind of like this. This is like the fundamental physics for biological systems. And guess what? Just like the fundamental physics in the early 20th century, it's pretty bloody counterintuitive. The way the world works, the way the biological world works is not the way we think it does.
And we can over we can simplify all we want, but eventually those simplifications will bite us. And then we will be of too little adaptive capacity. And what will happen is some people will step into the breach as responsible people, they will try to make it work. They will fill the gap. Now, one of the surprises in this, when we reframe and put complexity first, the world is always complex. And when is it safe to relax how to behave in a complex world temporarily uh, versus the other way, which says, oh, we can relax. It's safe to relax. And we'll only deal with those complex things when we absolutely have to. That, never, that hasn't worked. I mean, it doesn't work at all. Instead, we're going to start with complexity and say, how, what do you have to do here? So the first one is this viability requires extensibility. You have to have graceful extensibility. It has to be non-zero. And what that means is you had a minimum have to have two kinds of performance. Right? You have to, you, yes, you must have the ability to get more optimal. Yes, you need to get more efficient, more productive, more tuned to what regularly happens relative to your goals and, and things. But that pursuit of optimality is a pressure on this other capability. Uh, that builds an adaptive capacity at the boundaries when surprise happens. Graceful extensibility, you need both. And I mentioned examples in biology and I could go on where they're both. Oh, by the way, ironically, what's one of the best examples? Viruses. Viruses would have been beaten by immune systems and their capability to develop treatments. Why do they keep coming back? Because they can adapt to preserve future adaptive value. And so the biological instances of this that show these things that seem impossible are in fact fundamental in biology. We can select for and build this being poised to adapt, even though we haven't experienced these challenges. We never thought testing would fail, right? We never thought in nuclear power in the 1970s that a series of small problems would combine with a couple misjudgments for people who had never thought, never been trained or, right, or engaged in the knowledge that would require them to think like nuclear physicists. <laughs> and so that combination of small things built up in a kind of going sour pattern, right, to be the equivalent of the big single failure that they had designed their safety systems around, right? They thought that was possible. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the big takeouts from the theory for me was really that balance between that robust optimality and graceful extensibility. And that if you invest too much in managing sort of the continuous improvement cycle and the managing for the normal daily events, you're at risk of making yourself less able to deal with surprise. Is that a fair takeout? Yeah, it is. So it's called net adaptive value. It is um, actually, uh, other than they didn't put the net word on it, it's actually got long roots in biology. Uh, we can pull this out. I'm not pulling this, you know, this is, that, that's the surprise in my own career and work and my colleagues and stuff and other things. It's when the reframing happened in, uh, uh, you know, uh, five or six, five, six years ago, uh, you look back through all this stuff and you go, oh, wow, it's here. I had it there. Oh, my friends had it. Oh, before me, these people had it there. I can, oh, all this stuff fits together and helps lay this out. So net adaptive capacity means you have to have, you have to invest both to build graceful extensibility. It needs to be non-zero. And you also, yes, we'll pursue optimality and you can build in some robustness criteria in that, but that depends on you understanding the kinds of challenges, having a good models of them. 
you have to have both of these things. And the problem is they interact. So until you're, unless you experience surprise, crises, um, tangibly that the plans are limited and the world hits, hits your plans and breaks them fairly regularly and fairly visibly to the, all of your organization and stakeholders, you tend to see the, the uh, sources of resilient performance as inefficiencies. And so you start to eliminate them. And one of the potential lessons of the current pandemic is that a variety of, uh, and it happens in different parts of the world different ways, but for the Western world, uh, we have way, uh, we've been kind of OCD on uh, narrow definitions of optimality and pursuit of that, and we've undermined sources of resilience. The breakdowns at the top levels of the country, the CDC's failure, the failures of testing, the failures of being able to scale up protective gear, uh, undermine many, many, many different aspects. By the way, just this is a common finding in disaster uh, response, right? As the the uh, event initiating the disaster event, the crisis event operates at scale, so uh, hurricanes get stronger and extend over larger uh, physical space. Uh, what happens is everybody's local plans, contingency plans, and backup turn out to all break in the same way at the same time. Uh, so, and you see that playing out in the in the rolling outbreaks. Everybody assumed, uh, and you see this from some of the medical um, uh, state level personnel, well, we always assume we can get help. The, the crisis might hit us, but it doesn't hit everybody around us, so we can get resources and borrow from them. Well, they're getting hit too. The, uh, you quickly find that the, uh, some of the things that are assumed in your backup plans, often implicitly, uh, turn out to get undermined or broken by the same event that initiates the crisis for your your main service. The things that you would rely on uh, in your contingency plans as a, a backup resource or another resource you can draw on to compensate for the main event uh, turn out to all be oversubscribed because everybody's trying to use that resource as you think of your bandwidth slowing down as an example as we all adapt by being on Zoom meetings all day, working from home. So a variety of things you think of end up, oh, or look at the issues with Zoom on security and privacy and whatever, things that didn't matter when it was an occasional thing, et cetera. Now, when it becomes your frontline way of accomplishing work, all of a sudden, some of those security vulnerabilities in Zoom or some of the other tools we're using become much more significant. Change. Surprise. Dave, you talk about um, graceful extensibility being a dynamic capability, and I think there's a way of oversimplifying this where people might form the view that um, graceful extensibility is just about more redundancy or just about more contingency planning or just about more components and resources within your system to draw on. But when you talked about your theory about the law of stretch systems and how it's it's not about just having more stuff in your system. Yeah, so uh, the simplest way to put this, I, I'm gonna take from, borrow from two people, Eric Hallnagel, my colleague in much of this, and, uh, and Lynn Margulis, who's uh, one of the major biology figures. And in trying to explain what we've understood in biology, she puts it very simple. Life is a verb. And life did, uh, did not develop through combat, but by networking. And so let's start with the first one. And that is life is a verb. It's about what you can do, as Eric puts it. It's about capabilities for acting. So building an action capability, anticipation supports acting in the appropriate timing 
right? So these are dynamic capabilities. So we have a problem in English right off the bat, since resilience isn't a verb uh, grammatically, yet it is substantively. It's all about the verbs and the adverbs, what modifies your verbs. And Western management has been set up around categories, around nouns. And so this is where I said, this stuff is hard to understand, not because it's in a sense hard to understand, it's because we've, un we've tried to make the world be the opposite of how it really works, because it gave us a bunch of ways to pursue optimality if we could relax change, if we could relax finite resources, if we could build, you know, isolate a piece of the world and pretend it isn't very interconnected to other things. Of course, what we found is, is that actually people were moderating the interconnections to other things, were moderating the little surprises that were continuously happening to make this little planful envelope work sort of as intended. Because this is going to get to the third subset of uh, theorems, of findings, of, of fundamentals in the theory. So resilience as a verb is about capabilities, and that runs you into the first set of fundamentals in the theory. All right, given finite resources and change, uh, everything has limits. Surprise happens, behind, right? Is regular occurrence, right, at the boundaries of those limits. That means. Uh, what we are uh, interested in is the risk of saturation or uh, sustaining the capacity to maneuver. In other words, as I start to run out of action capacity, I need a mechanism to be able to generate more, right? I have to extend my capability for action, right? I have to generate, mobilize, and deploy new ways of working as I start to run out of the capacity to continue. Now, where does that come from? It comes from decompensation. Decompensation in our current case is happening at a society level, at, uh, at large-scale jurisdiction levels. It's happening at um, uh, hospital system levels, right? Uh, when people can't get in the hospital, when they're trying to, because the hospital is so overloaded, it can't handle more, right? That's a sign of decompensation, of saturation. And you can't deal with it very well when you're in the middle of being, when you're close to the edge. So instead, you have to act as you as you start to approach it. And we have proofs of concept for many settings, uh, at human society level, at uh, jurisdictional levels, at organizational levels, at cognitive system levels, uh, at uh, neurophysiological levels, at you know biological cellular levels, all in all of these places. So the, um, the critical thing here is every unit at every scale is at risk of saturating. And that means Right, they need to avoid brittleness. Right, avoiding brittleness, positive side is maintaining viability in the long run. That requires extensibility. That has to move gracefully from the ways we normally work as we as we encounter and deal with surprise. You can't just invoke something completely out of the blue because it won't work very well, and it won't be sustainable because it's sitting around waiting to doing nothing, waiting to all of a sudden deal with a surprise. So you have to take advantage of things that are normally going on. And, and push them further. So you have to build these deeper capabilities of reciprocity and initiative uh, and many others uh, in order to have that potential to adapt when surprise, especially bigger surprise hits. Now the next constraint, so we end up with this constraint that every unit at whatever scale has to have non-zero graceful extensibility. Non-zero, has to have some. Now, it has two implications. One is none of our automation, ha all of our automation has zero graceful extensibility because it's all designed saying this is the best way to do things. It's just going to do its thing. It doesn't recognize uh, that 
risk of saturation. It doesn't monitor for risk of saturation and it doesn't invoke or interact with other parties in a way to gracefully extend performance. Could it? Well, we just published a paper where we did it with automation on an airplane case. Uh, why don't we do it? Because nobody ever tries because we keep falling into the trap of the oversimplifications uh, and just the pursuit of optimality. Uh, so you have to have non-zero graceful extensibility. What's the second constraint on that is you can't have enough, right? Because the nature of surprise, which is you can't categorize it, characterize it specifically, means that you whatever you build up, given the interaction with pursuit of optimality means, right? If I build up a lot to deal with all the kinds of surprises, I'm going to be too inefficient in the short run. Right. And so I'm balancing in this a net adaptive value between these two capabilities. So one of the things I need is the second set. I need a network of uh, units that have adaptive cap capabilities to synchronize and coordinate. Right. Remember, that's the second failure pattern. Right. And the second complementary success thing is we need to coordinate. And this kind of coordination. If you look at the hospital systems, they are doing a been doing a massive reconfiguration across multiple roles and levels, uh, not just within a hospital and hospital system, but across hospital systems, across other aspects of the, in the U.S. The states, uh, in order to build a capacity to respond to a patient surge from COVID nineteen. Uh, it's all about reconfiguring how you work together. It's in the it's in our studies of emergency departments that have been fundamental to resilience engineering for 20 years. It's uh, in the studies of responses to beyond surge events in emergency medicine from mass casualty uh, events, et cetera. So what that means is neighboring units, right, need to be able, they can either constrict or extend the adaptive capacity of the units under stress. And what we want is ones that expand that capacity that help you when you're at risk of saturation or when that risk is growing, right? And expand your capacity for maneuver, right? We don't want ones that constrict. So when you see people hoarding resources because they see relationships breaking down across supply chains and things, that's exacerbating from the, the total level, that's exacerbating as shortages start moving around and more and more people defect from cooperative activity. So how do you build social solidarity so people cooperate, right? Because there's a cost to helping the other unit at risk of saturation. I'm devoting resources, I'm devoting energy. I'm not doing, right, the things I'm supposed to count to look good because I've got all these measurements that I'm supposed to hit and all these things are monitoring and counting them. And I'm not working on them. I'm not doing my role I'm helping somebody else's role. The positive example at the moment is the healthcare workers from Poland who are jumping on planes and going to Italy to support the healthcare system over there. Yep, yep. So anyway, so that's quickly subset two of the fundamentals, which sets us up for subset three, which we've explained in part in terms of net adaptive value. You have to have a system that has both capabilities. And yes, they're dynamic capabilities and you need to monitor and understand that. Uh, and make sure you have, uh, make sure you appreciate where your, where your resilient performance can come from. Now to do that uh, requires a reframing. And that is going from my system, I have a great plan. I've, I've worked out a great way for us to work and I have a great track record that we're doing a great job. And we've identified some threats and problems and we've made progress and I have data that says we're doing great. Uh, we're doing great. So what happens when people adapt to handle a surprise? Well, if they adapt well, you don't see it. 
right? That's the law of fluency. Notice it's a law, right? The law of fluency is well-adapted activity hides the difficulties handled or the dilemmas resolved. So if you do it well, you, nobody sees that there's a gap between the plans and the way things really work. They don't see the plans have limits. They don't see the kinds of surprises that are coming and what those surprises, what you need to have in order to figure out what to do in that surprising situation and to do it in a timely way and who to coordinate with to do it in a timely way. So this it, hiding it. Uh, so when things go badly, then what do the people who develop the plan are responsible for the planning and automation and procedures say? It's, well, you didn't work the plan. If you'd worked to plan, if you'd worked to roll, if you'd worked to rule, everything would have been okay. So they come back and say, let's increase the pressure to work to rule, work to roll, work to plan. Guess what that does, right? Pressure turns out to be part of the fundamentals. You increase the pressure to work to roll, you, you get more role retreat. What does that mean? You get less coordination across roles. You get less help when you're at risk of saturation. What do you get? You get less graceful extensibility, all right? And you get less help when your graceful extensibility gets exhausted. What did that doctor say today? I'm not getting any help. What's my responsibility when you don't help? When you don't support me and I'm personally at risk and I'm supposed to be responsible actor taking care of the patients. That's the commitment. That's my identity. That's my work, right? You put me in a fundamental dilemma, right? And it's related to your lack of support. And we see this playing out uh, across the world at different levels when you're late and stale at responding to the rolling outbreaks. Uh, and you create this fundamental dilemma at the sharp end. So the systems are inherently messy. It takes work to see them. Snafu, situation normal, all fouled up is constant, right? That's what you're hearing from the front lines. That's what you're hearing about from protective gear. That's what's happening because of the lack of testing means our standard effective epidemiological interventions aren't possible. Situation normal, all, all effed up. That's actually normal. Your belief that your plans work great is common and off. And that turns out to be fundamental. It's not a weakness of you. It's not a character flaw. It's not, you know, some indictment of you as an organization or a manager or a human being. It turns out it has to be that way, right? The difference is, do you spend effort to recalibrate? You will be miscalibrated. You, you will think your, your model, your competence envelope is more competent than it really is. You will think the envelope is bigger than it really is. No matter what you do, that will be the case. So who's successful? Those who put energy in and sensitivity. Remember the third form of breakdown and the third complementary success to that breakdown is proactive learning versus stuck in slow, being slow and stale and st being stuck in old ways of doing things, right? They are poised to adapt. They're poised to learn. They're poised to remodel how things are working and change the way things work in order to meet the new situation. They may draw on fundamentals that made that organization successful in the past, but they have to be utilized and matched to the challenges of the world in new ways. So the, it's this irony here, and it derives from one of the constraints that people miss, right? And uh, this is called perspective bounds, right? And related to the fact that any unit at any level we're talking about, is local. It's in the world in some place. And a constraint on being in the world in some place 
is bounds on your perspective. And that's stated very, very simply that the uh, view from any single point of observation, right, simultaneously reveals and obscures properties of the environment. It simultaneously reveals some, it's a good perspective, at the same time that it's obscure some, it's, right? It's hard to see some things from that perspective. And that's a hard constraint. In other words, nobody can stand outside this world. Nobody can escape from this constraint. So you can't get it by putting a drone at a thousand feet. You can't get it by having sensors on a satellite looking down. That's a perspective that simultaneously reveals and obscures. You can't have it by saying, I've got the big view as an effective C-suite. Uh, you can't get the view only by being at the front lines and seeing what is the details of what it takes to get work really done and the problems and messiness that really occurs there. All of them give you reveal something and obscure something. The way biology solves this constraint is to shift and contrast perspectives. Biology has no, no omniscient point from which it can observe and have tr truth. No command point can exist but, that has the perfect perspective. Rather, it solves the problem by changing perspective and contrasting perspective. And that's the way, I'll give you a simple proof of concept, which is the way you move through the world. The way you move through the world is not because you have the perfect perspective, but because you pick up information from changing perspective. And if we took that away, you wouldn't be able to move smoothly through cluttered environments. You just wouldn't be able to get around. That's how fundamental this is. But it's just, it, it, it's one of these things that we do, but to know about how we do it is really difficult. So central, sorry, central, at least in my interpretation, quite central to graceful extensibility is what you talk about as being capacity for maneuver. And um, I suppose graceful extensibility is it fair for me to say that graceful extensibility is sort of the opposite of brittleness is also a boundary phenomena? So we worry about graceful extensibility when we're at the boundary of our performance envelope. Yeah, uh, it's a boundary effect. The issue is the two things are going on. The, in other words, performance near the boundary is going on at some rate, right? At some tempo. It goes on. It's there. You don't assume it's zero and then occasionally happens. Turn it around the other way. It's going on all the time. All right. Well, what is going on all the time? What are the small ones? Where, is it over here? Or is it over there? It's going on. And you have to find it. Remember the fluency law. You have to go find it. Right? At the same time, you operate far from the boundaries. You do them simultaneously in parallel. That's a big mental switch for everybody because they see this as one or the other. I'm in one or the other mode of operation. Now, it turns out you don't transition very well from one to the other if you think of them as sequential and separate. Right? If you see them as parallel, and again, this turns out it has to be this way in biology. And you can do it badly. You can do this badly too. Right? You're not going to survive long if you do both badly. Right? You need them both. So don't say we're just building up a, a reserve or building up uh, uh, buffers and extra supplies it's, right? because what? those distract from the efficiency criteria. On the other hand, if your efficiency criteria runs amok by itself, you will, you will inevitably eat right, the sources of resilient performance. You will inevitably reduce graceful extensibility. You will inevitably get more brittle. Right? What's the fundamental finding from all the modern system safety stuff? Cut through it all, and it's very simple. Failure in complex systems is due to brittleness, not to component failure. That's it. Right? Yes, components fail. Yes, we should make better components. Yes, 
we should have better subsystems. Yes. That's not how we get reliability, robustness, and, and uh, 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 resilient performance from organizations and systems and industries and services we provide. We get it by coping with the potential for brittleness. So capacity for maneuver, that's why it's maneuver, it's an action, back to verbs, right? Building up and maintaining some capacity for maneuver, right? We can't have that capacity, deployable capacity for maneuver that's big enough to handle everything. So we have to have be able to mobilize additional capacity, right? Sometimes that's not gonna be enough. And so then we have to be able to generate. So at a example of a state level in the US, as the rolling outbreaks heads towards your state, what are you trying to do? You're going, I need to generate new capability, make it mobilizable so I can move it to places that need it, depending on where the outbreak is in my state, that the surge, excuse me, where the surge is that's challenging delivering medical care to seriously ill patients. And I, I have to do that while still taking care of the patients who I still have to take care of who don't have COVID-19, and because they still have, despite reduction, serious health problems to can't be deferred. And I have to do it all in new ways. So I have three kinds of stressors on the system, interacting with new people in new ways in this novel situation. And so I, uh, and then I need to get that deployed at the front lines. I have to deploy it. It has to get to the bedside. It has to be in the ICU. It has to, it has to reduce the chances of the healthcare providers getting sick themselves and adding more burden to the system and taking away the capacity to care for patients. Early in this, we were getting estimates of 8% of the healthcare workers getting COVID-19 seriously. Now, uh, the last one I saw today was 14%. Uh, there's some speculation that this has because of the intensity of their exposure to the virus that they're getting sicker than the average person in the general population. Uh, so we don't know these things for sure and the flux and uncertainty of the situation. But we do know for sure that right, if we can't uh, reduce the infection rate of the healthcare workers, we undermine our ability to provide for the sick patients who need care. Therefore, we will have a higher excessive death toll. And by the way, if you look at the stuff I'm putting out, uh, my current estimate, we'll get a good estimate, but my current range of estimates is four times to well over 10 times. That when we calculate excessive deaths down the road, that number could come out to be 10 times. In other words, the things you do could make a difference that would reduce fatalities by a factor of 10, or doing the wrong things could increase fatalities by a factor of 10, 10 times. Now, maybe it's only four times. Maybe you do okay, right? Maybe it's even less, right? But the difference between the best places, right, and the and your place could be very large. You know, how are you going to deal with that when this is all over and they come back and say, that, you know, we're going to have a score and there's going to be a bunch of places that look pretty damn bad. Dave, you laid out, so I think towards the end of the theory, you lay out some architectural safeguards or some things that enable this capacity for maneuver when you're, when you're at the boundary and I, I really like those I think um, because it's not the normal way of organizations generally functioning which is I think there's three things there about empowering decentralized initiatives so like pushing decision making local rewarding reciprocity and uh, cr creating a greater means to synchronize activities are they, they are the type of capacities that you think organizations really need to be deploying now because we can kind of assume that every organization around the world at least some part of their organization is is severely stretched. Yeah. So we can add a couple more to that list. But when people say, okay, I got the concepts, what do I do? All right. What do I start with? 
especially to the general audience, is I start with, right, you've got to support initiative. You got to now governing the expression of initiative does not mean everybody gets to make it up as they go, right? Uh, but without initiative, you can't have graceful extensibility, right? And so now, if you have, if you have, if your initiative leads to a lack of coordination across roles and levels, then you end up with fragmentation. So you have to, right? So the organization has to think about where and how do we support initiative, because it can't run amok. And this all happens in military and military history. If you actually look at who wins and how they win and whatever. It actually turns out that supporting that initiative, yet embedding that initiative in a collaborative and a, a network of coordination, that combination is what's critical, right? So that's how you set up and control and manage the expression of initiative. Without initiative, there's no graceful extensibility. You're maximizing brittleness, maximizing the chances in a challenge event that your performance will collapse. Uh, reciprocity, and that's why I, the quote today came up and was noticed by a bunch of us simultaneously today. Uh, it's uh, and it's been much of what we've been pushing in terms of the response to this, uh, whether we use the word reciprocity or not. Our basketball help team defense is all about the help, right? Is right reciprocity, and what's interesting is reciprocity is an old finding in social science. It's often talked about as altruism. Uh, in Eleanor Ostrom's work, it gets a little more specific and relates to what are called polycentric governance, some of this architectural issues about how multiple jurisdictions and places of partial authority and autonomy have to interact and coordinate. But, uh, but reciprocity in the theory now gets a more, more actionable definition. Reciprocity is specifically about your ability to see another interdependent unit role or level is under stress and at risk of saturation, losing, running out of capacity to maneuver, and you will take action to extend it. A second set of fundamentals, that you will expand and extend their ability to perform despite the increasing stress and load on them. And this is, in the theory, it's that second subset, it's absolutely fundamental. You can't do it by yourself. There's, you know, no matter how you build for graceful extensibility, uh, you can't have enough, and if you do have enough, it won't last long because of the efficiency pressures when crises aren't visible and frequent enough. So you have to build this set of reciprocity in advance. You can't build it in the moment. You can't build your management of expression of initiative and how you reconfigure roles and relationships to support initiative, but embed it in a larger coordinative network on the spot. You have to do it in advance. You have to build up these relationships. You have to build up the ability that the measures you use on performance are not so narrow uh, that you are actually inadvertently driving out reciprocity, driving out initiative, or driving it underground in ways that won't work as effectively and won't be as easy to coordinate and won't share the information as much because they're an underground system that goes on to make, this, uh, to make your organization's uh, service work reg uh, under regular pressures and the regular kinds of dragons of surprise that show up. Dave, um if we go three to four weeks from today, what can you see? What, what, what do you anticipate is going to be going on with the, with the healthcare sector and, and the state of this virus based on what you're seeing in their readiness to respond, to respond right now? Well, unfortunately, uh, you know, the um, evidence, all right, remember, the, the unique characteristic of what you're getting at is we are in the middle. We are actors and stakeholders in the middle of things we study. 
we are seeing the patterns of, of resilience and brittleness play out. We're seeing uh, graceful extensibility trying to be created ad hoc late in the process and not very effective. We're seeing decompensation at a hospital and, and uh, uh, state kind of jurisdiction, uh, metropolitan jurisdictional uh, areas. Uh, uh, and we're seeing the opposite. So, you know, in some sense, part of this is what we always see in disasters. We see the best of people and sometimes the worst of people. Uh, and those go on together as we see people exploit these, um, uh, the changes and the challenges and the reconfiguration for completely uh, other purposes that have nothing to do with the, um, uh, the threat to life uh, that the virus represents. We see this in, um, so what matters a lot is how early you anticipate and build a readiness to respond versus doing it late. The prediction at the not in four weeks, but when we can actually figure out is, is the ones who respond late and get slammed at the hospital level uh, where sick people, Ill, uh, severely ill people outweigh uh, uh, their ability to care. New York is looking pretty slammed right now. We'll have higher excessive death rates when this is all over, but that's in two years. It's a rolling outbreak and places that are late are already late. Now, now, there's some other jurisdictions that are going to hit, see this later still. And the uh, issue is, are they going to have the larger capacity as a entity? Some of these might be rural areas, uh, which don't normally have uh, central administrations. You know, they much more uh, about local uh, institutions. Will they be able to coordinate and synchronize their activities and learn from the other areas? Or will they think of that's not about me? They'll distance themselves. I'm not an urban area. Uh, you know, uh, other kinds of bad things may come in to uh, give them a model that they can be, uh, that they will not be very affected by this. Uh, or that they're just, they'll be late in it and something will happen with vaccines or treatments or something and, and it'll be okay for us because we're late in the cycle. The pressures, the being late uh, creates more dilemmas that have higher costs to resolve. And we're seeing the impact of that already. I don't have to project out. We'll see the um, people defecting. Uh, you see it already because I don't like the consequences for me. Uh, and I'm willing to take the risk, even though I'm adding risk for others in terms of fatalities, excessive death counts eventually. Because in the short run, for me, it's easier. And so we'll see this kind of defection from uh, collaborative action. So uh, efforts to build solidarity are very, very important. And jurisdictions and layers of society that operate outside uh, feed, directly feeding the hospital's capability or reducing transmission rates need to build solidarity in society. So we're all pulling in the same direction. If you want to get economic recovery and restoration, the fastest way and best way to do it is to end the, break the transmission, right? So cases aren't going of, of severely ill and uh, generate the capacity to treat all the people who are se severely ill, as well as all the other people who still need healthcare. Uh, we're gonna put out in the next few days, uh, criteria that need to be met if we're going to resolve and, uh, the uh, outbreaks and start to relax some of the restrictions. How do we start to move forward and bounce forward? I mean, one of the common myths about uh, resilience is that we bounce back to where we were. We bounce, you know, we return to the old equilibrium. It is a dynamic thing. Equilibrium, equilibrium models are oversimplifications for these processes of adaptive systems. So you're not bouncing back. You're not restoring. You're not going back to the way you were. You will be different. We will all be different. 
how different, in what way. We will, well, what the research says is we will draw on our past. We will draw on what worked. We'll draw on our images of our past and our identities about our past to define a, a, a post-COVID uh, reality. I think that it will have a make a difference in terms of access to healthcare. Right? Uh, that this is a kind of situation that somebody's a slice of society's lack of access to healthcare puts everybody in that society at risk. And in fact, it's part of our restoration criteria that if you want to start rolling back restrictions, uh, uh, it's kind of hard to see how that's going to happen if you can't uh, test and treat or test, isolate and treat people uh, who have uh, get the virus. You, you've got to see this on a society wide and the places that have done well do that. They test everybody. They test extensively. They trace contacts. They isolate as you get as symptoms get worse and you're more ill, they have the capacity to treat. That's what's going on in Germany. Germany is working not because they tested the most earliest, tested the most and the earliest, but because they're testing the most thoroughly. All right. They are testing, tracking contacts, isolating very, very thoroughly and effectively. And that's why transmission has been low. They've also had, uh, extra, they've had more capacity than some of the other European countries in terms of their medical system and were able to stand up additional capacity. So they have not been overloaded at this stage because they acted in advance of the surge. So death rates are very low in Germany. So that's a, 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 a relatively recent in the rolling outbreaks example. That's uh, we could look at Singapore and we could look at Taiwan and we could look at South Korea and the stories are slightly different in each place and of course the size of these these uh, uh, jurisdictions are different uh, and different than the U U.S. or the European continent. So we'll see. Uh, what do I see coming? I see a bunch of places are going to get slammed. You know, I think some places will get lucky and and uh, taking early action will be sufficient to keep things within the range of their healthcare uh, system capabilities. It's um, it's interesting about how do we advise organizations? I mean, if we're not there at the right time, we can have all the explanations and have those explanations lead to help them make, be decisive at the right time. Because a lot of this is about timing. When it, can you be decisive at the right time? I mean, you need to be decisive. The time you need to be decisive, it's not going to be obvious that that's necessary. So it's easy for people to delay until they think it's absolutely necessary, like Florida, which still hasn't completely come to grips with the necessity of action. And so you, you know, you fear for those jurisdictions that they will have a uh, rough time ahead. Now, I, I have one important point to make about this situation. And that is, remember, one way the theory is, is grounded on kind of an expanded view of, of controls, dynamical systems. And in dynamical systems, saturation and lag are the two things that kill performance, right? And I'm basically treating lag as another form of saturation in the theory. But COVID uh, virus is perfectly poised to make it hard to counteract because of the long time constants, the lag in the system. The fact that people can have the disease and not have symptoms or, or stay asymptomatic, and, but be highly transmittable makes this very difficult. The idea that to cover the full distribution of onset of symptoms is 14 days, roughly, uh, is a problem. To uh, recognize that if you need hospitalization, it's probably going to take 20 days before you leave. One way or another, it's going to be 20 days. You take up an ICU bed 
right? You're in there for 12, 14 days. So we can saturate the resources very quickly because of the way these accumulate because of the time delays, the, the timing of this stuff. What does it illustrate? Let me come back to the simple story at the beginning. Resilience is a verb. It's about verbs. It's about the adverbs that modify the verbs. It's about how to know when to be fast and decisive and when to be slower and thorough. And guess what? When crises like this, you don't get to be one or the other. You have to be both. And that's what's going on, for example, developing treatments and vaccines is you have to be fast, but you can't, if you give up being thorough, you're going to create new forms of harm, avoidable harm because you stop being thorough. And some of the success stories we look at, we see how organizations reconfigure, push initiative down, build reciprocity, realign coordination between the top layers of the organization and the front lines in order to be highly responsive and still have new ways to be thorough. But what do they sacrifice? They sacrifice the normal procedures and ways of doing things and the controls and goals that those those uh, procedures uh, supported. They spend more resources. Uh, they spend a lot of resources. They don't worry about resource expenditure. What matters is, can I get the stuff? Do I have the stuff to take the actions that are that are going to be effective at the right time? And that I check any action I take is not having uh, negative side effects that undermine or offset the benefits of the action. And so we see new forms of horizontal coordination, like I described in the healthcare system. Uh, and those have to be supported, right? So that all of a sudden people are talking directly to each other. So when somebody says, this would be good for me, we're going to go do this. Somebody else goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Is there another way to do that? Because that's going to screw us. And that's going to put this at risk. And we don't want to do that. And they go, oh, yeah, there's another way we could do that. We go, oh, good. This one doesn't put me at risk or my people at risk. Let's do that one. So often their second choice may be, you know, have less consequences for me or be or fit with my first or second choice in a way that we both get goal satisfaction and risk reduction in handling the new situation. So thanks, uh, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate um, you doing that. I was in a study group the other day that was facilitated by Ron Gant where we went through this, this paper of yours and hopefully now we can, I can send this off to the people who are involved in that because we couldn't quite get to the bottom of all of the ideas. So thank you so much for your time. Well, there's a lot of ideas in there and a lot of them are challenging, you know, all the way from, you know, because we all think we have a command system and, oh, it turns out biology won't let you have a command system that works, that's adaptive enough. And the fact that your models will be wrong and it's okay. Your models will get wrong. The world will find ways. In fact, one of the best way, one of the biggest reasons your models will get wrong, your procedures, your automation, whatever, is because they're successful. When they're successful, it triggers more forms of adaptation. Those forms of adaptation will produce new kinds of challenges, new dragons of surprise that will test the limits of what you worked and what you improved and what you were successful at. And so um, uh, the idea that you have to keep learning, keep on learning, and, and that you will be miscalibrated and the, the successful organizations put effort into testing, is, is my model of the world still the way the world works? Or is something different going on and I need to change it? It's okay to change. Don't get stuck in stale because it used to work. So before we wrap up, I thought it might help to briefly share my thoughts on that discussion with Dave. Graceful extensibility is a dynamic capability, so it's really hard to have a set formula for how to build it into each individual organization. But here are my five practical takeaways from this conversation. Number one, all work involves continuous change and finite resources, and therefore uncertainty is never zero and risk is never zero. 
So this is a really important uh, overall conclusion, overall finding. And we really need to be wary of our static models of work and risk. So method statements, risk registers, procedures, they're only ever a point in time and they're only ever a partial representation of work as done. So the more we focus on these rigid, prescriptive and um, static models of work, the more vulnerable we are to surprise. Number two, all teams have base adaptive capacity to adapt their day-to-day -day work. So we need to think of things like the weather, unexpected situations, equipment failure, all of this day-to-day -day problem solving is this demonstration of adaptive capacity in action. And humans are great at it. And we need to support this in our organization because this is how work gets done. Number three, when teams and organizations are at their limit of this local adaptive capacity, they need to be able to extend to avoid catastrophic failure. So this is different to their day-to-day -day adaptive capacity because what they need to do is they need to be able to invoke new resources, new decision-making processes, new compromises around different types of goals and new relationships. They need to be able to draw in from areas outside of their own immediate team. So we see this quite practically in things like crisis management teams, which many organizations will be standing up right now in response to the COVID-19 virus. So this lets your organization function in a very different way to the way it normally functions. So you need to be able to know when your teams and organizations are at the boundary of their performance and their resources, and you need to let go of your old models of work and decision-making to do this. This is not just redundancy and contingency planning. This is adapting the way that your organization and your teams function to prevent them from catastrophically failing at the boundary of their resources. So capacity for maneuver, this is what Dave talked about. This is what helps, and this is what you can build into your organization before your resources and teams become compromised or, or as Dave said, saturated. And there's three important factors here. Number one, decentralized decision-making. So teams will always be, and organizations will always be more responsive, will always be able to keep pace with the changing nature of context um, for their work if they decentralize their decision-making. Let people make the decisions who are closest to the information and to the point of risk and to the real-time changing nature of work. Number two, reward reciprocity. So teams need support. And in trying circumstances at the edge of their performance envelope, neighboring teams and vertically up the organization can either constrict or extend them to be able to do that. Most importantly, are horizontal relationships. So you need to think about this in the context of an organization that runs multiple sites. What are you doing to encourage relationship and sharing and leveraging and mutual support arrangements between different sites so that a site manager of one site can straight away call a site manager of another site to draw in resources, to draw in advice and support. Organizations that do this well, that maintain these really strong horizontal relationships for like teams across their organization are going to be able to extend their capacity when they need to. And you have to have a means to synchronize your activities. So you need to make sure that you can fastly pass information and communication and decision-making across all the different parts of your organizations. And you need to be practicing this in advance. You need to be connecting your organization well during normal work so that it knows how to maintain those connections when it's tested at the boundaries. And number five, this is really tough and, and you know really interesting, but the more you focus on efficiency, the more fragile you become to more unexpected surprises. 
So that means the more optimal you are for the current environment, the faster, the better, the cheaper, the more efficient you are for what you're dealing with today is going to make it more likely that you're not going to be able to face well the things that you do that you might run into tomorrow. So if your efficiency criteria, as Dave said, runs rampant, you'll eat into your graceful extensibility. So our listeners, the safety professionals in their organization, they need to be a voice for maintaining some level of flexibility and resources on the front line of their business. A great example is in general aviation when people want to move from two pilots to one pilot. This push for efficiency is going to compromise your capacity for maneuver when you're faced with a testing situation at the boundary of your resources and your performance. And I also like the way that Dave said as a, as a bonus takeaway after, after those five, that teams and organizations are always overconfident. They always think that they can handle more than they actually can. They always think that the safety margin is bigger and the boundary is further away than it actually is. So that's it for this week. I hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organization. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review. It will help others to find it. And send any feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes directly to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 